Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I'm your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy here in Rochester, New York. And today's show, we are going to be talking about uh, ignoring non-managing family shareholders and how it can undermine your business. Um, we have two incredible guests that I'm happy to introduce. Pat Armstrong, um, a family leadership coach. Uh, in uh, the West Coast, and Arna Bodwin. I, did I get it right? I always struggle. I apologize. Um, and it, can you tell us, share where that name comes from? Uh, sure. First, the first name, well, well, thank you for welcoming us. Uh, well, it's so happy to be here. It's Arna Bodwin for sure. You got it 100% right. Uh, first name Arna is Swedish, derived from, uh, from Swedish, and the second is Dutch. Uh, my dad, okay. From the Netherlands, and that's where it comes from. I love, I love it. I, I always love, you know, having that interesting name. Um, Pat, you're Pat. I'm Michael. You know, there was like thirty <laughs> of us as we were going through school, right? So welcome, to, right. Both, welcome to both of you. I really appreciate you joining us and uh, sharing your expertise today. What I, what we like to do when we start the show is, if you know, if each of you would just take a, a couple of minutes. This, this idea of working with family-owned businesses, I think in the last maybe five, five years or so has really started to become a, a, a more well-known study. But even today, it's not really that well-known. So where did you come from and how did you get into working with family-owned businesses? What was your journey? So Pat, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to kick us off. Sure, I'd be happy to, Michael. Um, well, I'm a psychologist by training, um, and uh, so started out in public mental health, uh, and then uh, developed an interest in organizational psychology. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, I, I pursued, um, you know, work in a, in a variety of perspectives, um, uh, really probably most directly came to the family work by way of serving as the head of human resources for a decade um, of Wells Fargo's private bank. And in that context, learned a lot about the trust business, family businesses, you know, working with families. And so um, uh, after a decade doing that, um, had the opportunity to work with Arna at um, the company's multifamily office, um, uh, which is Abbott Downing. And so um, at that juncture in my career, it was really an opportunity to go back and work directly with clients, but within the context of their family businesses, within the context of leadership development and really helping them um, achieve the objectives that they hope to. So it was kind of a, a path through organizational psychology and human resources. Yeah, 
And there, there's probably no more interesting organization than the family at some times, right? Well, that, that, that's right. The, you know, wonderful dynamics. Um, and then just on a personal note, um, I mean, I didn't make this connection intentionally, um, but my parents had um, a small family business. So I certainly had an appreciation for how, um, you know, when you have a family business, it's all hands on deck. Um, and, uh, and then also my grandparents had a, had a farm. So I'm the third generation steward of that, of that farmland in Illinois. And, you know, you learn a few things about, um, about that as well. So. Agreed. Love it. Arna, tell us about yourself. Uh, sure. Um, well, like Pat, I was, I've also been trained as a psychologist and uh, originally started out in private practice when I received my PhD uh, in San Francisco, where I was born and raised, um, and uh, moved into an interest in health psychology, particularly uh, behavioral health interventions in primary care. Um, and because of that interest, pursued uh, working with the neurology department in the multiple sclerosis clinic at the University of San Francisco, California and San Francisco, um, and subsequently with uh, Kaiser Permanente, one of the big HMOs in our country and their corporate offices, helping to design uh, psychosocial interventions for chronic health conditions like diabetes, healthcare, um, a heart attack, I should say, and so forth. Um, I was recruited over to Wells Fargo, actually our parent company in 2003, uh, to help run our employee assistance program, which at that time was one of the largest internal employee assistance programs in the world. Um, and after about seven years in different HR roles there, uh, moved over to the wealth side of the business. Uh, now, 10 plus years ago, uh, immediately found that I was just passionately interested in uh, the organizational you know, psychology aspects, the systemic approach to helping families manage through transitions. And I've never looked back. It's, uh, there's so much you can do, so many interesting families to get to meet across the country. Um, and also I just find myself inspired by these families every day and how they navigate some of the natural inherent challenges of family business. Love it. That's, uh, I, I think it's that piece that probably drives all of us is that it is you, you know, so different and, and so inspiring to watch what's happening inside of the family dynamics, the family business, and you know the, how they manage things. That it just it, it makes every day exciting and fun, and that's that's great. Yes. Thank you both again for sharing. So today, you know, the, the topic, and you know, we put the title out there: Danger, Will Robinson, which I'm aging myself, you know, but. Uh, <laughs> Um, ignoring non-managing family shareholders can undermine your business. And um, that's really interesting. It's not something that we've talked about to this point. And because, you know, not every family business has ownership outside of those working in the business. So that, that a lot of times the family says, you know, if you're going to you know, be an owner, then you have to work inside of here. But what uh, oftentimes happens and tell, you know, help me, you know, help our listeners um, is that when a business gets so big, you know, there's oftentimes the, you know, the, the founding generation or whoever the controlling generation, when they pass that on, you know, in order to do estate planning properly and to do keep things fair, they end up passing ownership to people who aren't working in the business. And um, that has its, you know, pros and cons. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about this, I guess, 
you know, before we dive into some questions, is there any, you know, um, do you want to lay the groundwork a little bit? Do you want to just give a little, you know, background on why, why this topic came up for you? What was percolating when this, you know, when we were talking about this topic? Well, I, I, I think it's probably our psychology backgrounds, right? You know, we're, yeah. we're interested in the dynamics in families and, um, you know, and, and I think for me, um, uh, to, to see, um, incredibly well-intentioned um, family members, both within the business as well as shareholders, um, uh, struggle to understand how to um, uh, communicate with each other about the business. Um, you know, if it, you'll if if you ask any um, uh, anyone who values family businesses, perhaps helping them get ready for a sale, or you know, helping them you know strategically, they will tell you that paying attention to the share, shareholders that may at some point have to vote on an action to sell the business or to you know buy a new company and so forth, that that often that is um, those voices are neglected because they're not in the day-to-day -day business, but at those critical junctures, it becomes incredibly important. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that's what has um, interested us is, um, and then we're both interested in, um, in governance work, helping families, you know, develop structures and communication processes. And so really underneath that is to understand um, the challenges of communicating when you're just partially in the business, i.e. through ownership. Gotcha. Yeah, I would, I, I agree 100% with what you just said, Pat. And I would just add, you know, I, I think my interest really uh, came back to a, a family that I had a conversation with that I got to know a little bit over about a year, year and a half. Um, three principals uh, who were G2 themselves, all over 60 years old, uh, a sibling group, um, thinking about how they could transition their business to the next generation and whether they should actually contemplate a sale. Um, they only had one or two, um, a first one, then a second, uh, uh, next generation family members working in the business. They weren't sure if they were the right ones to sort of fully inherit the business and run it in the way they had. Granted, they hadn't had as much experience as that senior generation. Um, but one of the things that was interesting is there were so many other next gen stakeholders in that next generation. And they had so many questions around whether they could participate in the family business. I, I, it was interesting to me to see some of them didn't realize there were no jobs for them in the family business. Um, as the senior generation said, it's not like we can just hand out jobs left or right here. We have to be profitable too. There has to be a need. But there was such an education gap there around, well, why do some family members get that opportunity and the rest of us don't? Um, and then for those who might be interested, could there be some other leadership opportunities for them as part of the larger sort of family enterprise? The other piece, um, Michael, was, this family, some of those shareholders who did not fully feel like they understood the business, they, want, they wanted to know how they could exit and take their shares with them. And of course, that was another opportunity to educate them about if you actually all did that, the business would collapse. So, you know, they, I, I never forget that family around how important it is. There's so much to do about trying to bridge that the uh, communication gap, as Pat said there. That's very helpful to frame that between the two of you. I appreciate that. So 
we're again, we're talking about the non-managing family shareholders. I want to make sure that we keep emphasizing that, but there, there's, there's got to be, there has to be a way to give them a voice and allow them, you know, some perspectives and understanding, you know, give voice to the perspectives and the challenges that they have of being non-family, you know, non-managing shareholders. So that, you know, it's, it's like, I don't own a, you know, I, I don't have anything to do with XYZ stock. I'm not going to put any, 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 sim, you know, symbol out there, but just because I own the stock, I don't get any voting rights other than the shareholders vote. I do, I can vote for the shareholders, but my little, you know, stake in that company, regardless of, you know, who that is, is tiny. Um, but that, that's a natural, we all know those rules when we buy the stock with a family business, it's much different than that, isn't it? And, and so the education process and how do you give those people voice? Well, well, it is. And, and I, and I want to share an example about that was so um, touching to me in terms of the importance of that voice. Um, and so, um, uh, uh, you know, this was a family um, with uh, multiple locations, all in small towns. Um, and it was a family with multiple branches. So the third generation was, for the third generation from the founder was running the business. Um, and so in the process of starting the communication process, someone who was described by the people in the business as quite disengaged when given the opportunity to talk about their experience, described the experience of being someone whose last name was the name of the business, but really knew virtually um, very little about the business. And, but, but because they operated in small towns in his community, people would approach him on the street and say, hey, I heard about this or what's going on about that. And he was profoundly embarrassed to not be able to communicate about what was going on in the business. And, you know, sort of, um, you know, it bothered him, but there was no vehicle to be able to um, uh, voice that concern, right? And I'm not sure he even, you know, verbalized it as a concern to himself until given the opportunity to talk about potential questions or information that he had. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think we, we underestimate um, the emotional connectivity and don't always anticipate where those emotional connectivities come from. That's a great story. I appreciate you sharing both of the stories. It's you know, this summer we um, we did a family meeting, and it wasn't it wasn't non-managing shareholders, but it was spouses and children of the family, you know, family business members. So much the same thing. It was really interesting. We did uh, you know uh, we put up a video of what the family does. We won't get into exactly. But it was, you know, they're in the construction industry and, and, and so the, you know, it was just an interesting video that showcased the business. And uh, one of the nine-year-old kids, you know, just looked at the video and she stands up and just looks at everybody and goes, who does this? It's so neat. And it was just <laughs> that same kind of concept the, of sharing that. Um, so Arna, talk about, you know, what are some of the ways that we can 
provide, you know, give that voice to those non-managing shareholders and, yeah. and, and tackle some of these challenges. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the key ones um, is really around um, having some structure or process that really um, sincerely conveys that we recognize you um, benefit from education. We recognize your importance as supporters of the business, right? Um, so family meetings are a really important one. With the example that I shared a little bit ago, um, those three siblings, uh, G2, the ones all in their 60s, the senior generation, they recognized that they needed to do uh, a better job of engaging non-managing shareholders through a family meeting structure, not the once a year uh, vacation-based, family vacation-based sort of family reunion structure that they had done for 20 years uh, since their own parents were alive, where there was a little bit of information shared, but it was really a family reunion but to actually have more regular uh, family meetings. And so that was a huge undertaking for them. Uh, among the siblings, there was not uniform agreement around how often they should do those meetings, how much information should be shared, or even why those non-managing shareholders deserved uh, to have you know, four or five times a year family meetings. Um, the other piece was then, you know, what do you share at those meetings, right? And I think one of the key learnings there, Michael, for me, was that some of the, the sibling um, uh, owner group, they were worried that somehow inviting those non-managing shareholders to a family meeting conveyed that they would have voting rights around the strategy of the business. Um, and so, you know, again, another really key communication aspect, both for the managing family member and the non-managing shareholder family member around what are your rights and responsibilities as shareholders and where do your rights and responsibilities uh, end and the, those who are managing the business, which in this case is feeding into those trusts that you will benefit from someday, uh, where, do they, where do they have the voting rights that you don't have? But what was in between, of course, is everyone's right to communicate better, educate better, understand better. And I think there was some recognition in that senior generation that in fact, the closer you drew those non-managing family members in, the more likely you were to get that support you needed around how you run the business. That's interesting. It's, it's almost like what we fear most is when you dive into it directly is when you get the best results. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Love that. Pat, anything you'd like to add? Um, well, just just building on that, um, in the example that um, um, you know I shared about the families kind of coming together regarding how they would communicate, um, one of the things that um, that it's important to think about is sharing information from the perspective of the recipient. So with this particular family, as Arna you know, referenced, um, there was a practice of annual meetings and information was shared, but prepared by the CFO, prepared in a way that, um, that didn't really ask the question, is this what you want to hear? Is this what you're interested in? Is this the level of detail? So being able 
to drill into um, what is of interest to you, what would be helpful, and frame those discussions in a user-friendly way, um, uh, you know, is important. In your example, the video of what we do, right? You know, if you wanna, if you wanna think about engaging, um, you know, the teenagers, the younger folks, one of the things that's exciting about family business is, is the contribution that's made, the, the profound contribution um, in the country, around the world of family business and the cool stuff that people do that family members are often sort of tangentially aware of, but when you really drill down into um, what it is that we do and what's important, um, that can be very engaging and builds a kind of pride that is invaluable in terms of long-term engagement. Um, I, you know, I, I think Arna raised a really important point about the issue of the fear around, um, uh, well, are you gonna try to tell me what to do? Um, and, um, and so I think at the heart of that is that when you have shareholders who are who, who are owners, literally who see themselves as owners, you know, what does that ownership mean? Um, does it mean I can tell you what to do? Well, no. Um, but what it does mean is that you have um, uh, the right to understand the key drivers of the business and how those are going. Um, so in a, you know, taking another example of a sibling group who, uh, one of whom uh, ran the business, um, uh, lost, their, um, lost their parents suddenly. Um, and, um, and even though the sibling who was running the business had been cultivated in that role by um, the father, the sudden loss, put the siblings into an interesting position because all of a sudden the, the middle kid, right, was, um, was in control of what they now all had equal shares in. And so they were making each other crazy with questions about, well, what about this and what about that? And the, you know, the managing, you know, sibling was feeling like, you know, uh, unduly questioned and, you know, potentially undermined. And so just the process of helping them step back to say, what are the key variables that influence your interest in this business. And things like, you know, this happened to be kind of commercial real estate. So things like occupancy, things like debt load on some of the properties, you know, a, a process of going through and, and figuring out the key drivers that they really did have a right to know and communicating that information in a proactive way. Um, uh, put some structure around that constant questioning. Because if you ask the other siblings, they would say, well, we're, we feel like we're responsible now and we have to ask questions and we need to know. Um, but it was not um, uh, organized in a way that was helpful to anyone. And so, you know, thinking about the drivers of the business and how that's relevant to shareholders is a valuable activity. Yeah. Great. 
add to that, um, you know, uh, Pat, you really, you, you started to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the concept of dual role relationships and families. And this is, I think, one of the biggest educational opportunities in terms of how to manage the dynamics, right, between uh, managing um, family members and those who are non-managing shareholders of business, but to sit down and actually acknowledge where there's all these dual roles that we're playing at once with each other, right? So let's say it's Michael, you and Pat and I are the same family. It could be that at work, Pat is our boss and CEO. Um, could be at home, you're the trustee, Michael, of both Pat and I and my trusts. Um, and it could be that in another scenario, Pat actually has a majority voting share uh, because uh, the way our senior generations died, more of it ended up in, you know, and so to sit down sometimes and acknowledge these are the different roles we play. Now let's shuffle it again. Now we're siblings. Now we're um, owners, owner family members, and, and we're all in that same group, but you manage, I don't. And then to really specify what are the roles we each need to play and the boundaries of those roles in each one of those setups. Um, that is so helpful to families. And I find as we move around and talk to family, uh, business owning families, every, every month of the year, I'm always surprised that people don't spend a little bit more time acknowledging the, how the pressures and the dynamics of those dual role relationships do really need to be acknowledged and then spelled out. Once you do spell it out for families, I find it's a lot easier to then say, let's put some ground rules around how we act in terms of each of these different types of relationships we play. Um, because at the end of the day, I think we all know this, most families, maybe this year's an exception because of uh, uh, COVID restrictions around Thanksgiving, but at the end of the day, all families wanna be able to sit down around the Thanksgiving table together and not feel like all these dual role relationship dynamics have gotten in the way. The more we sort them out as a family and uh, re uh, revisit them from time to time, the more it gets clear around how we can really navigate those different roles in the different settings. Great. I want to talk about some best practices on doing that. But before I do that, just something that popped into my head is that you know, we, we identified real clearly what the, some of the challenges and perspectives were, especially in, in that um, when we're talking about the, I have the same last name, I'm walking through town and people are asking me, what are some of the other challenges? I mean, is there, I mean, do you have like in your head, there's three or four other challenges that I can just list so people can hear some of the other thoughts that the non-managing shareholders might be thinking about or perspectives? Yeah. I, I, I'd add one uh, right off the bat and it was referenced just a little bit earlier, but uh, the concept of um, an exit strategy. Um, I think for, for some families, there are uh, more restrictive sort of covenants around who can exit and when, if they're a shareholder in a business. Uh, for other families, it's, uh, it's a little bit simpler, but, uh, the, the, but e in either scenario, there may be no education for the shareholder around whether they're allowed to exit, um, as a, you know, if that's a strategy that's open to them, how that would look. Um, there's often, I, as I said earlier, a misunderstanding for the managing um, the family family members around whether someone's allowed to or not. And often legally they are allowed to, um, but the more that families can kind of educate shareholders, non-managing shareholders around what, what would actually happen to the business if they did it. Um, at the same time, as we know, um, Dennis Jaffe, who's a, another psychologist, a great colleague of ours and yours too, Michael, um, you know, he just did this great study of 100-year enterpri enterprising families, right? Businesses that have survived for 100 years or more. 
Um, and one of the interesting um, findings, he had sort of seven key findings that describe these, these different families, but one of them was that they had very clear exit strategies for shareholders who wished to literally take theirs and leave the business. Um, and because they had clear strategies and they had those way up front, they could also plan as a business for how the business would bear those exit strategies, mm -hmm. right? By using credit, for example, to, to, to do a cash out or some other, you know, um, big, but I, that is such a important one. It's validated in our experience every day. It's validated in the research that Dennis Jaffe and others have done. Um, that I would say that's one of the biggest opportunities families have because it's an unspoken question for so many family mm -hmm. business holders. We find they'll, they will not talk about that around the boardroom table or the Zoom uh, room, but they will talk about it privately and say, I'm afraid to ask because it makes it look like I'm greedy. But what it sometimes means is they're just not educated. They, want, they have a right to know, but they don't know how to get their question answered. Great. Yeah. I think an, I think another concern is um, is how constructively to provide input. So if you have questions or concerns, or if, for example, you do hear something in the community that could be valuable to the business, how do you challenge that? Uh, how do you channel that without appearing to be micromanaging or meddling? Um, so I think, um, uh, you know, I think there are, is there a constructive channel for providing input? Perfect. So jumping into best practices, you know, how do we start to unravel these things? What are the, you know, what are three or four of the different, you know, best practices that people can be thinking about. I, th I think you've already hit on one of them and that's, I mean, the biggest one, right, is just being open to communicating, right? Mm -hmm. And so why don't you, Pat, do you wanna jump in from there? Sure. Um, uh, so uh, we've talked a lot about what to communicate. And one of the things that, um, that I, I really like as a strategy is the idea of agreeing together on a dashboard of information that will be shared. Um, so, um, uh, you know, and, and again, it, it varies with the business, but essentially if you, the, the first best practice is to make the uh, commitment to communicate. And the way in which you operationalize that is to have some discussions around um, what are the key variables. Um, and that can be put into, you know, I mean, dashboard is my word, but, um, you know, that can be put into a routine reporting structure that, again, is understandable to everyone who's involved. So, so really working through drafts of that and making sure that, you know, is this the information? Is there anything else? Um, you know, what would be more helpful so that you are then routinely communicating that. Um, if you think about the role of communication, um, it's first and foremost to build trust and then create, a, you know, with that foundation of trust to create alignment. So how do you create trust and alignment? You do that with um, uh, shared information that um, you receive consistently and that um, uh, is, is understandable and meaningful in some way. So I think that's the 
you know, the, the communication is the best practice, something like a dashboard is the tool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not? I, yeah, I like, I like that, Pat. And I think having, um, you know, it, when you have those family meetings, thinking about the non-family uh, managers in the business too, and having them do some of the presenting, right? Uh, first of all, it takes away some of that family dynamic right away. Uh, but it's a great opportunity for um, to sort of neutralize the Q and A uh, portion of it, right? And, uh, and be able to. Um, it's also a good reminder to non-managing, um, you know, shareholders that there are other employees who are non-family members who are actually shouldering key leadership responsibilities of business, and um, it's an opportunity to see why they have those roles, right? In terms of their experience and backgrounds, uh, their expertise. I think one of the others is, um, um, you know, I, I loved um, Michael when you talked about. Uh, that young family member saying, who does this? This looks so neat. Because that is one of the best practices Pat and I sort of think about too. It's how do you bring family members closer to sort of the key work sites of your business, to to see the people who work in the business, um, uh, if, if, uh, what the distribution channel might look like at every step, what the end user looks like. Um, if it's a real estate business, what the different properties look like. Um, and so I've seen some families really make progress in exciting everyone around this important legacy, right? That's being managed um, by really creating more of a multimedia approach to sharing information with families. Um, and I, I say multimedia because um, it's really important to Pat's co- uh, uh, comment about educational styles and how we take in uh, communication to not just focus on reports and numbers for family members, right? We live in a visual world. We, uh, if you're thinking about next generations, they've grown up with social media. They've grown up with their lives online. They now have distance learning, uh, which has been reinforced this last year. Um, so really think about how do they learn best? Um, and so I think that multimedia, lots of focus on visuals um, around every part of the business. Um, and don't forget to put in pictures of people. Uh, I think um, uh, th- that's a really, really important one. The other is, to, um, to give people that opportunity um, to think about things like internships. Um, I, a lot of families have not really explored the concept of internships for family members in their business. And I think it's understandable why. It takes a lot of work to put an internship program together. Um, and, but, the, but there's such an opportunity if you wanna, first of all, if you wanna engage and inspire uh, your shareholders, what better way than to give them an opportunity to come and sort of get a taste of what the day in the life, right? Of what sure. work in this. The other is if you do, many family businesses say we do want to find that next generation of talent and leadership. Uh, and there may be one or two people that really they have a passion and interest. Um, they want to do the work. Let them have that opportunity to see what it actually looks like. Uh, can be eye-opening for people to see what that looks like. And I think the other thing I would just say about internships is people always ask uh, me, should they be paid or non-paid? And I'm just going to say right now, I, if you want to interest family members, especially young people, let's say high school, college, to come and work in your business during their only time off, you better think about how to pay them. Um, and I've seen a lot of families um, sort of uh, have very different polarized opinions around whether or not it should be a rite of passage and people should be honored to be asked to work in the internship versus just the reality that you're competing with the demands of other people 
uh, other people's times. And so uh, a realistic sort of, you know, uh, sponsorship of those internships is important. That's great. I, I would add one more thing on the education piece, which is that, um, you know, a number of families choose to, when they have their periodic gatherings, choose to do that at a work site location. So when you can actually visit and use the conference room of a facility that you own and is part of the business, then you get that direct hands-on experience as well. That's not always possible, but that's a lovely way to build that engagement. Yeah. You know, it, go back to the, the story of the young girl this summer, and I'll share a couple other things that I think will be helpful in this conversation. Because again, I, these weren't these, it would get even stickier if they were shareholders. These were non-shareholders. All the, They were just family members. And so it was really important to them as well. When they were setting up this meeting, it was the very first one that was ever done. The non-working family members that weren't part of any of these meetings were like, what is this all about? When, when the family business coach that I work with, you know, was walking up to them at the park that we, you know, we, where we were doing this, which was a work site that they owned and yada, yada, yada. It felt like death was walking across the field. People were like, who is this guy? I am not happy about this. Are we going to be singing Kumbaya? What is he planning? And so that setup is, is important you know, it's really important to make sure that that letter goes out and the emails go out to prep everybody and the communication is there to, to, you know, to make these things happen. When it was all said and done at the end of the day, everyone to a T said, I'm so glad we did this. Mm -hmm. Grandma and grandpa started this business and I didn't even understand all the things that were going on. And, you know, we, they talked about the, the family employment policy. And in the, there was even some discussion about that where there's some confusion. And it's, we're like, no, this is to be inclusive, not to be exclusive. We want you to do that. And then the last little piece that I'll, I'll share was, you know, engage, the, like I said, this was a construction demolition company. So they engaged all of the children by having the uncles come up and stand up and pretend that they were either a bridge or a building. And then the kid had to determine how they were going to take down that bridge or that building. And it was, you know, I'm Superman and I've got this superpower <laughs> and I'm just going to knock it right away it was hilarious and people were laughing and having fun. And it's, those are the kinds of, it just, I love what you're talking about because it is when you watch that transition for the first time mm -hmm. for whether they're not, you know, for other family members, because they are proud of that name and it's attached. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting a, I, I, I Michael, you're, you're, oh, well, your example um, uh, touches on a, a couple of other best practices. So one of them is um, establishing ground rules. Um, so we talked about communication, right? But, but in that example, the family members who didn't know what to expect were freaked out about, you know, and, you know, it's, you know what is this going to be family therapy? What is it going to kumbaya? What's going to happen? So at the outset, as you start getting families together, going through a process of building together, what are the ground rules um, is incredibly important. Ar Arnie, you may, you may want to add to that. No, I think that's true. It, it extends, that extends to the point I was just going to make to you, Pat Michael, which is, um, you know, from the standpoint of, um, 
family members who are shareholders too. And from the standpoint of those who work in the business, there's also um, realistic, important uh, legal questions that non-managing shareholders have related to their tax returns, right? Related to the trust. And I've sometimes seen friction uh, between uh, the, the, the sort of the business and the non-managing shareholder uh, because there needs to be some regular questioning, right? Sometimes their accountants need to call the business. Um, everyone, not everyone may do their taxes at the same time. And if you're within the business, um, as I've seen when talked about with many families, family business owners, um, they will see that as dragging down on sort of their, whether it's their, um, their accounting team, uh, their financial team, their CFO, um, that suddenly they're having to shift and they'll say, you know, I'm start we get calls all the time from family members around uh, tax related issues. Um, at the same time, of course, those shareholders have to go to the business to get those questions answered, right? And so you, um, it's really important to acknowledge that, um, uh, come to that uh, with, uh, in the spirit of this is not gonna be adverse, an adversarial, adversarial relationship, but also let's have ground rules around when those calls happen, when, we're, when you have the right to sort of come in and take time away from our, uh, from our sort of CFO or accounting office for your own personal uh, taxes and needs, uh, but also what our responsiveness will be like to you as, uh, as family members who are non-managing shareholders who have important questions that can only be answered about by the business. Love it. Michael, you also mentioned uh, an employment policy. And that was one of the other um, best practices that we wanted to call out um, is uh, the, the incredibly important role that that plays, really starting with what's our philosophy about your right to work in the business. Um, you know, many families will share that um, they feel a best practice is to have um, neither an expectation or entitlement. Right, that it that you know the kind of voluntariness to um, engage with the business that there is an opportunity out there, but how it needs to be earned. Um, another part of any good employment policy is what is the philosophy around how you prepare. Um, there may or may not be extensive uh, internship opportunities. Um, are there educational criteria? You know, many families will say you have to have a degree in this or that. That's not appropriate for all businesses. So really thinking through what's the appropriate preparation and how do, we, how do you get that? How do we support that as a family? Um, and then the other, there are many components of a, 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 you know, an employment policy, but another one that we wanted to call out was um, the issue of how you evaluate family members, going back to um, Arna's description of the dual relationships that happen in families or in businesses. You know, when you have, um, family members who are employees, how will they be evaluated and making that clear, you know, in your policy saying you'll be held to the same standards and talking about how you'll articulate that or um, the compensation practices will be the same, the vacation practices will be the same, you know, clear expectations around no special privileges associated with being a family member. And you know, not making assumptions about those, being really calling them out. Gotcha. So, any other examples or stories that talk about ways that you have utilized to engage 
family shareholders that don't have, you know, ownership, anything yeah. that you'd like to share? Yeah, um, with one with one large family, uh, four generation family that I've been in dialogue with for a few years now. Um, one of the things they recognize is that um, they, they, they were full up on mostly non-family member managerial roles in their family business. And they had made a decision after a couple of generational transitions of the business that they were going to move more towards hiring outside external non-family member uh, executives for a company that was growing into, uh, you know, a, a multinational corporation. Um, and, but they also recognized that, well, then what can we do to really focus in on sort of what the larger sort of family enterprise, the business being part of that family enterprise, but also our wealth and our legacy and our next generation sort of uh, preparedness um, and empowerment being part of that. And so they did a really good job, I thought, of trying to identify other leadership roles that family members could take up in this larger enterprise. For example, um, creating an opportunity for a set of um, non-family member, uh, non-managing family shareholders to, to develop and, and become the leaders of a family foundation in, the, in this family. Um, they set up um, some other leaders to be the head of what they developed as a sort of a companion to the business, which was a family assembly. Some people call it a family council. Um, and the important lesson there was just because you are sort of the leaders within the governance structure for the business, that doesn't mean that you should or can uh, or, or even want to be leaders of the of, of sort of family assemblies or the family foundation. So really thinking in families, I thought this family was very creative, but think within your own family, even if it's something smaller, right? The annual charitable giving strategy for a family um, or the head of family education around financial literacy. That's a job that I think most families would really benefit from someone kind of taking up leadership around. Um, I think there's a dearth of financial literacy in this country. Um, and, um, and so really thinking broadly and creatively, what are some other leadership opportunities in this family? And let's share the wealth a little bit, pun intended, um, so that others really see um, and have an opportunity to showcase the value that they can provide. You bring something up that I just want to, if both of you, you know, share your opinions on this, where, so I have dealt with a lot of families in that the revenues of the business are 10 to 20, 30 million, even 60, 50, you know, $100 million of revenue. But I, a lot of times, you know, where, where that goes is they're really still focused on doing. And yet, and so it's, you know, where is that tipping point where it's like, you know, we really need to start focusing on these things and not just running the business. We have to be worried about running the family. And I, and I know it's not always a dollar amount, but, you know, I would think that there's times when you really, it becomes important. Where, where would you weigh in on that? Well, I, I think the tipping point becomes somewhat generational. Um, so if you think about the, the founder's generation um, is really all about building the business and in some ways protecting 
the family members from the um, anxiety of the ups and downs that you have in the early days of a business. Um, and then, um, you know, when you move to the next generation, the sort of sibling generation, um, uh, depending on how many siblings, depending on their involvement, you know, it, it may start to happen there. Um, but certainly by the third generation, um, uh, er everyone um, starts to see that um, these communication issues and, um, you know, figuring out how we're going to operate together become more important. And someone, someone in the family um, steps forward and says, you know, maybe we should think about this. Um, uh, and, and, and if we, if we want to stay connected as a family, if we want to be more structured, how do we do that? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when, when you think, so when we talk about family governance, you know, a lot of people use the term yes. family governance and really at its essence, it's about how are we going to make decisions? And when you get to the point where it's not possible to just make decisions over over coffee or you know you know among a few individuals when there is more complexity um that's the time to start thinking about structures yeah. um and um it's a little bit different for every family but um just as one example um you know a family that was starting to be in that that third generation and had a single board, um, so the operating board, if you will, had family representation, but they were recognizing that they really needed more independent expertise on the board. And so their evolution was to move into a structure where they could move to more of a, a, a family business board of directors, right, with more independence, and then create a family council that had some representation on the business board, but could be that bridge between the families and family assembly, as it's often referred to, the bridge between all of those family shareholders and the, the business board. And so I think most people would say that tends to happen around the third generation. Right. And, and you know, I would I would throw out to you that it it may happen between first and second generation when there's a great deal of success and the and 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 there's you know several you know in the next generation or in the um, the other piece that I would throw in is um, if there was a divorce, you know, because mm -hmm. that complicates. You know, I have, you know, how you're treating people. So it's, it's not always a money thing. I sit here, a revenue right. driver. It's that it's just when there's going to be complication, be re proactive instead of reactive to it would be what you're recommending. Yeah. Yes. And I would say it's seldom a money threshold. Um, it's really more though those dynamics. And you know, you raise an important point about um, the so-called married in 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 families and um, you know, various views about that and what their role will be. And you know, you'll see many family businesses that have very successful um, uh, sons-in-laws, daughters-in-laws who participate in the business. But the you know, each family culture is different about how closely they want to, 
they want to hold that. So being explicit um, so that um, uh, you, uh, y y it doesn't feel personal if there, um, you know, is a, is a married in, you know, family member and you, you know, it's not about that person. It's about, you know, your philosophy overall in terms of how closely that you want to hold it. You know, in some ways, if you think about um, policy, we talked about an employment policy, but there are a number of policies that you can, you can develop. Um, and those are really a way to anticipate thorny issues that could happen before they do. Um, sometimes in the heat of the moment when you're trying to solve a problem, it feels so personal and so painful. Mm -hmm. um, so putting the work into anticipating where things could go wrong or be problematic in advance is a way to practice how to resolve issues in a principled way rather than um, kind of personal or, or, or positioned. Sure. Mm -hmm. Everybody's familiar with the buy-sell agreement and mm -hmm. prenups. Those are the reasons why we do them. We think about them in business and we think about them personally. Um, are not, can you talk, when you, when you look at family governance and you look at those pieces, you know, what are some of those areas? So I, we, you talked about a, a family board of directors and then there's the, you know, so hit on some of those things and what are some of the documents or what are some of the things that people would put time into? We talked about the employment yeah. policy being one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the great connecting points for family members, whether they work in the business or not, uh, can be developing things like a family constitution. Um, and for people who are not familiar with a family constitution, it's really putting together kind of a statement of purpose or mission for the family about the family. Uh, and there's some great examples I would encourage people to go online and Google family constitution uh, or family mission statement, family vision statement. But essentially what, uh, what is contained in one of those statements is um, some messages around the purpose of our unification as a family, where the business fits into it, uh, sometimes less about the business, sometimes more around the success that the family has achieved, what it means, what its intended goal is for the next generation of the family. Um, it's also a great way. So you imagine five, six sentences, sometimes even three sentences, right? It's a statement. It's not a book. It's not a chapter, but it's sort of saying, it can also say, here's what we believe in as a family. Here's what's important to us as a family. And I've seen Michael, and I'm sure you and Pat have too, that some families, when they have their family meetings, they'll, once they have that constitution or purpose statement, they'll put it at the top of every one of their meeting agendas. Sometimes it'll be more values-based. Here's the values that are important to us as a family. Um, and you can walk into the offices of some of the family businesses around the country, as I've had the pleasure of doing. And sometimes you walk right into the door or walk up the stairs and there's the statement, right? And I think it can be such a great place. Um, it sounds simple, but you have to have a lot of discussions to put something like that together. I think that is just a, a foundational sort of exercise that can bear fruit for a long time. Um, one of the others, I think, is uh, for families to really dive in, we've talked about communication a lot, to understanding uh, communication styles, communication differences, and really use that education as a way to stay more connected um, as a family and to overcome or even manage ahead of uh, conflict, which is inherited in every family, 
right? Uh, family dynamics is not a term that was invented for family businesses or for those who are wealthy. Everyone, family is family. But the more you can lean into that, and there's some great tools that families can use, assessment tools, many of which are kind of fun, uh, like the DISC communication styles inventory, Gallup's Strength Finders tool, which actually has a, a version that's appropriate for teens called Strength Quest, which is all about finding out your key signature strengths and then how to leverage those as part of the family's collective strength. Those kind of uh, family unity building experiences, uh, to some they sound too touchy-feely, um, but we have found again and again, you spend some time upstream on really focusing in on those as part of your foundation. Um, and it makes it so much easier for families downstream to understand each other and work well together, whether they work in the business or outside of the business, or they're crossing that bridge to meet each other in the middle. One of the, um, uh, uh, in regard to conflict, um, I saw a family uh, include in their constitution a conflict resolution policy that included um, the expectation that they would all get trained in a methodology that they would agree to apply to the issues if they came up, but to be very explicit about that policy. You'll also see education policies. Um, uh, you know, there might be a policy around uh, prenuptial agreements. You, you referenced that, Michael, but um, you know, as you know, in family business, um, that's an incredibly important risk management strategy. Um, so, no, those are those are great examples. I mean, you know, it's it's neat. We've I've never heard of the education policy. I've never heard of you know somebody do, going through and doing a conflict resolution policy. Those are just great ideas around how to you know and think about that the non the non you know business owning or. You know, the, the non-managing family members can really be engaged in those pieces and those tools. And that's, I think it's just, you, you know, what, what becomes hard for most is that you have to take the time and be really intentional about this. And, mm -hmm. and, and the way, you know, the, the pushback that I've, you know, gotten at times is that life gets in the way and it's just, mm -hmm. there, there's so much going on. How can I add this to, what I'm doing already. And I think the answer, you know, becomes how can you not? It, it, it's, it's so valuable. If you end up in that wrong situation, if you end up without these things, oof, there's a lot to lose. And at the heart of it, like you said, our, our now when we started was, we wanna be sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner table together. Mm -hmm. Well, and I also think you, you can, each family goes at their own pace. So in my experience to develop a governance structure to, you know, a constitution that can take 18 to 24 months. So the commitment is to work at it. Um, there's not a quick fix. The, the journey is probably more important than the outcome um, and really committing to time that is practicable um, to work on that journey, I think is really, um, it helps make it more digestible for families. And then so you also bad. have- I, Oh, sorry. I was, well, was going to say you also bad. have to read it. Yeah. Sorry about that. We're both very excited about the <laughs> I was just going to add, let's never forget, and I think this can really help families sort of focus together on the work. Um, 
let's not forget that we're trying to set up sometimes structures or just examples for that upcoming generation around how they can manage it. Let's do the work now so that they have something that can be passed on to them that says, here are all the things we figured out, good and bad, about how to make this work. Right. Ah, I think I could go for another two hours talking about this stuff. I have so many questions. We'll have to have the both of you back sometime and, uh, and do this again. Um, we're at the top of the hour. If people wanted to reach out to you, is that okay? Can they find you? Know, where do they find you? LinkedIn, websites you want to give, tell us a little. Pat. All right. Um, so uh, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and also um, I have a, uh, my, my email is pat, P-A-T, at drdrpatriciaarmstrong.com. There are no dots in the Dr. Patricia Armstrong. Um, and then I also have a website by that name as well. Great. And uh, for me, LinkedIn is the best way to find me, or you can go to the abbottdowning.com website and find me there, which is A-B-B-O-T-D-O-W-N-I-N-G.com. You guys were wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I really appreciate, you know, the, the knowledge and wisdom that you have brought to bear today. And I really appreciate it. So, well, thank, thank you, Michael. We appreciate the opportunity. You got it. Thank you everyone. And this has been another episode of the family biz show. I'm Michael Columbus with family wealth and legacy. If I can help you or my team can help you in any way, never hesitate to reach out to us and you can find us on LinkedIn as well. Thank you, everybody. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that, and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy, LLC, is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.